All right, welcome back, everyone. Now, as we enter into the reading and preaching of God's Word, I'd like to invite Alexandra to come on up and read God's Word for us today. Alexandra? Today's scripture reading is from Proverbs chapter 5, starting at verse 15. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he's led astray. This is the word of the Lord. We're all looking for love, aren't we? Like there's something innately as humans where we want to love. We want to be loved. Just think for a moment, all the songs, the movies, all the TV shows that are about looking for love, finding love. And you got to ask yourself, where can you find this love? Tinder? Bumble? Or is it, is it marriage? What's the big deal about marriage anyway? Why is it that the book of Proverbs, you'll notice if you're reading the book, that it comes back to marriage over and over, adultery over and over. Here's the thing, it's not just Proverbs. It's actually the whole book of the Bible. Marriage is a huge theme. And we actually see that marriage in the Bible, we see marriage at the beginning of the Bible, and we actually see marriage at the end of the Bible. Why? What's the big deal? Here's the big deal. The purpose of marriage is to actually point us to God. The purpose of marriage is actually to show us who God is, and that's this, that God is faithful to us. And and that's why he actually calls us to be faithful in our marriage. Why? Because it's a reflection of who God is. And that's why marriage is a big deal. And as we look at Proverbs 5, We're going to look at marriage, because that whole Proverbs is about marriage, from three perspectives. What breaks marriage, what builds marriage, what becomes marriage. What breaks, what builds, what becomes. So what what breaks marriage? What what happens? A couple years ago, I was at a relative's home, and we were going through my late grandfather's, um, his, his, you know, kind of his stuff and photo albums, and I came across a photo of my parents. And, you know, they were, it was a candid photo. It's one of those ones where you can see the timestamp on the bottom of the right, if you've seen those photos. And it's kind of yellowed. It's an old photo from the 80s. And my dad's wearing a suit, really skinny tie, like the width of a chopstick. Strange times, right? My mom is wearing a dress with frills. If someone can tell me what's the deal with frills in the 80s, I'd love to know. What caught me off guard? They were happy. They're holding each other's hands. And they're just not even looking at the camera. They're just smiling, smiling to each other, enjoying each other's presence. But then it hit me. 
I have never seen my parents happy in the same room. Because essentially, when I was first born, that was the end of my parents' marriage. My dad actually had a flirtatious encounter with uh, the landlord's daughter, and then he would end up uh, cheating on my mom with his secretary, and then he had another partner, and another partner, and another partner. And see, the thing is, my dad was a serial adulterer. How do you go from being so happy to that, to hurting your family, to hurting your wife, hurting your children? What exactly happened? In Proverbs, a couple verses before the verses we just heard read, it actually describes adultery. And as I'm about to read this, if you have your Bibles, you can look at it with me. Verses three and six of Proverbs five, it gives us two characteristics of adultery. So as I, as I read these verses, see if you can catch the two characteristics that we'll look at. So Proverbs 5, 3 to 6. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her, her feet go down to death, her steps follow the path of Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander. She does not know it. See, the first characteristic of adultery is this, that it satisfies the self. That's the thing about it. Adultery, sex, marriage, what's the focus? It's the self, the self, the self. Think for a moment. What's the description? It's honey lips. It's speech like oil. And In the ancient world, honey was an absolute delicacy. There was no refined sugar. There's no white sugar. It was honey that was the sweetest thing that you could find. The word drip is the idea that it's right from the middle of the honeycomb. That's the sweetest honey that you could find. And her her speech, right? Her speech is like smoother than oil. How does oil feel when it's on your skin? There's no friction. It's smooth. In the Old Testament, This is a metaphor, smooth oil speech. It's a metaphor for flattery. Flattery. More than actual sexual appeal. What does this person want? They want to hear words that puff them up. They want to hear things about themselves. They want to be desired. They want to be known. And here's this person offering it to them. It's about the me, me, me. Isn't that interesting? It's not obvious to us, but adultery is so much about the self. The second characteristic, if you caught it when I read it, was that it exchanges lasting consequences for temporary gain. How, does it, how do we see that? If, if you read the verse, verse 5, it says, her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. Sheol is like the grave. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander. She does not know it. It's a clear warning. The direction that that this adulterer is going in, where does it lead? It leads to death. It leads to the grave. This is a lasting, eternal consequences of the actions that she is taking. But how does it describe her decision-making? How does it describe her navigation skills? She is wandering. She does not know her path. She is looking and searching, kind of groping around, and she's not sure what direction she's heading because she has exchanged 
lasting consequences for what? For temporary pleasure. It's what is wanted now. It's what makes her feel good. And if we're speaking about adultery, there's an elephant in the room. If you know anything about the, Pro- the book of Proverbs, the most likely author of the book of Proverbs, of the majority of it, because there were different writers, King Solomon. If you know who King Solomon is, you would actually hear and feel how these words are oozing irony, oozing hypocrisy. Who was King Solomon? King Solomon had first-hand experience of the damages of adultery. See, his father, King David, he was meant to be the real deal, right? He was meant to be the king that was sent by God. But what does David do? It was adultery that would be the first fall into his kingdom falling apart. It was through adultery that would lead to David's murder, that would lead to a civil war, his own children dying, his own children fighting for him. Solomon knew all of this. Solomon grew up hearing these words, and Solomon was meant to be the next one. Solomon was, okay, so if King David failed, it has to be Solomon, he has to be next, but guess what? Solomon failed miserably. Solomon is described to having a thousand partners. A thousand. Seven hundred wives, three hundred concubines. How dare you write these words to us? How dare you stand on that moralistic, you know, whatever, that pedestal and tell us what to do? How, how dare you when you have failed this so miserably? In Solomon's life, we actually see how adultery and idolatry are synonymous. See, one is unfaithfulness to a wife, one wife. The other is unfaithfulness to one God. How can we write these words to us? If he wrote these words in this day and age, he'd be canceled, wouldn't he? Like, what a joke. You can't say this stuff to us when you can't fulfill it. What What a hypocrite. But why? Why did he do this? Why did he do these things? Think about it for just a moment. Just just step into his shoes. In the ancient world, remember, Solomon was a king. And so if Solomon's a king, well, he's going to want to build his kingdom, isn't he? he? So the more he marries, this was actually a form of diplomacy. He was building his kingdom. The more wives he had, the more he built his kingdom. And rather than finding that deep place of connection with a wife, he found a desire for his deep connection to build his kingdom and build it. And Solomon was known in the ancient world for his wealth, for his power. He had a lot of gold and jewels, rather than being known and accepted for who he is, who he was by his wife. He traded it for being known in the world for his riches, for his gold. You could argue that he was trying to be a good king, right? He was trying to do the best that he could do to be the best king that he was at the expense of what? at the expense of being obedient to God's word. And these two characteristics that we talked about, about adultery, we we, we can start to see that. He wanted success so bad for what? To serve his kingdom, to advance his kingdom rather than God's kingdom. He 
wanted temporary riches so much for his reign, for his life, and, and the time that he's king, that he neglected the lasting consequences for Israel, the lasting consequences for the kings after him. Now that we've thought about Solomon, kind of gotten to his shoes, are we that much different than him? Do we actually kind of empathize? Are we actually kind of like Solomon in some ways? What happens in marriages when you have two people and each of them are thinking to themselves, I need to put me first. I need to be the one that's happy in this marriage. You you just have two people trying to fight to be in the center of a marriage. And what are you going to get? You're going to get friction. You're going to get two people just butting heads to be in the center of the marriage. And they're both saying to themselves, this marriage isn't making me happy. She's not fulfilling my needs. He doesn't understand me. I'm not happy. This doesn't happen in just marriages, does it? What do we do with our faith? Does our faith shape us? Or do, or do we shape our faith? Do we actually make Christianity about our comfort, about serving us, making it convenient for us? You know, maybe it's how much you want that director role or that associate partner role or that residency at that hospital that you've always dreamed of. And what do you say to yourself? We do this, right? We do this. We say, let me just, let me just have this. The Christian stuff, the prayer, the church, the small groups, being in devotion to God, I'll, I'll, I'll do that later. Just give me this now because this is what is good for me. This is what I want right now. But you might desire someone, right? You want to be with someone. And you, f- you feel that loneliness. But at the same time, you start to be willing to, to compromise. You say to yourself, I mean, does it really matter if they're a Christian? Does it really matter that we come from the same worldview? I mean, they make me happy, right? He's a good guy. She's a good girl. Is it comfort and convenience? where we say to ourselves, we're going to be married soon enough, a couple months maybe. Does it really matter if we live together now? I mean, we're going to have sex in marriage anyways. We might as well just have sex now. There's no real difference, is there? In each of these instances, what do they share? It places the me first. We, we do this. We tell ourselves these things. It places us first. And what we've done is we've disregarded God. We're not obedient to God. We don't care about that. Why? Because we want to serve ourselves. We've become so short-sighted for, for the temporary pleasures, for what we want now, that we ignore, ignore the eternal consequences. And just like adultery, what are we doing? We're seeking other things. We're seeking other things to worship above God. Guess what? We are the unfaithful ones. It's us. We are the unfaithful ones. So we looked at what breaks marriages. So what builds marriage? For us to actually ask the question, what is God going to do with the unfaithful? We have to look at what builds marriages. And what we see that in marriage... 
We're actually called to treasure our spouse, treasure marriage, treasure your partner. If you have your Bible still open, Proverbs 5, 15 to 17, as I look at these verses, as I read them to you, just picture yourself, desert climate, your lips are chapped, you are thirsty. Because in the ancient world, there's no plumbing, there's no tap water, there's no Dasani water, whatever it is. I mean, no one likes Dasani, maybe Fiji water, but you want that water, right? It's not conveniently for you. So listen to these verses as I read them, 15 to 17. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself and not for strangers with you. See, for those reading these words in the ancient world, that water is precious. Drinking water, that's all for yourself. And, and these words actually say, right, how do they start? Drink from your own cistern. Drink from your own cistern. What's a cistern? A cistern is just a well. It's another word for a well. And the context is this. On your property, at your home, in your kind of space, in your courtyard, you've got your own well. Cherish it. This well is just for you. This is your own supply of drinking water. In Jerusalem, in that area, it doesn't rain for half of the year. Even in, in, in now in that area, there can be droughts where there's just no water at all. And what happens with this kind of context, when we can picture this, verses 16 and 17, what are the questions that they ask? They say, should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water? What it's literally saying is, if you have this precious water, you're not just going to you know, pour it out on the streets. You're going to cherish every single drop, like your life depends on it. You're going to see the value in that well. You're going to see and know that it's life-giving, it's refreshing that you need this water. And, and what I think the writer is trying to get across when it comes to marriage is that you cherish your spouse. You see the value in them. Your wife, they're just for you. Your husband, that's just for you. Treasure them, protect them, keep it to yourself. And the concept of being treasured, if, if you're reading this and, and you're Israelite at the time, I mean, it wouldn't be a surprise, especially in the context of marriage. Why? Because just really quickly, marriage and covenant you know, you see this word covenant a lot in the Bible. What does it mean? It's, it's the same thing, marriage and covenant. You have two parties being committed to one another. And the only thing that separates this covenant is death. And in the book of Deuteronomy, if you've read, ever read the book of Deuteronomy, it's long, it's got a lot of laws. What's the context? See, the context of Deuteronomy is you have the Israelites and Egypt. They're slaves to the Egyptians, like actual slaves working for no labor. And they're being beaten and torn apart. Moses is with them. A couple books back, right? This is Deuteronomy. We're looking at Exodus right now. What does God do? God frees them from slavery. Wow. And he says, and God says, I, I want to bring you to the promised land. This is how you can worship me. And how do the Israelites respond? If you if numbers. How they respond is they complain, they grumble. They actually start worshiping other gods. If you know the book of Exodus, Exodus 20, that's the Ten Commandments. What's the first command? You, have, you shall have no God above me. They're worshiping other gods. They're unfaithful. And due to their poor decision-making and the consequences of their actions, they're humbled. They're broken. They have nothing 
And then they look to God and they say, God, in our unfaithfulness, will you still be faithful? Do you still love us? Do you still care? Are you going to fulfill your promises that you gave us? See, Deuteronomy is a vow renewal. Deuteronomy is God saying to these people in this covenant, in this marriage, that in your unfaithfulness, I will be faithful to you. These are the exact words that are repeated three times. He says, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God, right? He's speaking to these unfaithful people. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. A people for his treasured possession. God is telling these people that he loves them. Despite their unfaithfulness, that he is committed to them. If all you think about God is that he's an angry God, that all he wants to do is crush people, you're not seeing the full picture. I don't think you're seeing the full picture. And this idea of being treasured, it's not just for the Israelites. It's for you. God is faithful to you. God is committed to you. Think about it. You are actually treasured by God. We always assume that this faith, of course, a lot of it is us worshiping God. Yet at the same time, God loves us. God treasures you individually. 1 Peter 2.9, this is in the New Testament, but you were a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Does that sound familiar? Dr. Mark Futado, he's a Hebrew scholar. He's saying that this is the exact same idea that we see in Deuteronomy. You are treasured by God. Christian, if you're a Christian, you are treasured by God. He loves you. He is committed to you. So much so that what he treasures so much, his own son, that's the whole point of this gospel message is that God would send his son to be murdered on a cross so that your sin, your unfaithfulness, my unfaithfulness, my sin, it it doesn't separate me from God any longer. If you're looking for this love and you're desperate for it and you've looked everywhere, and you might not be a Christian, or you might, and you're still looking for it. This is where it is. This is where you see this love. This is where you find this love. It is only in God. And so for the married, right, do we cherish our spouse in the way that God cherishes us, that he treasures us, even when the going gets tough? Will we desire to be faithful and, and treasure our marriages, treasure our spouse. And I, I just want to qualify this. You know, if you're at home or you're sitting there and you're thinking to yourself, you know, I'm in a marriage where it's physically abusive. I'm in a marriage where um, it's mentally abusive and it's a lot of pain. I am not saying that you need to stay in that marriage. I just need to qualify that. Our denomination, the PCA, myself, um, our pastors, we do see that in the New Testament there are exceptions to divorce where they are needed and that is one example. So if that's you and you're sitting at home and you're feeling this way and you feel that pressure, please don't. If you see that ticker on your screen right now that has that number there, please text us. We want to protect you, we want to care for you. If that's you, please. So one way to build marriage, to treasure your spouse. The other way to build marriage as well to find pleasure in your spouse. I'm going to read verses 18 to 19. 
if you have that look at it, look at these words. Right? They're quite intense. I mean, I like to say they're quite spicy words. Actually, I was, I was speaking to um, Alexandra who read the, the, the verses for us, and she's like, ooh, you know? I actually had someone say, are you comfortable reading these words? And we're just laughing, like, this is the word of God. And so listen to these words. Are these words of perversion, or are these words of encouragement? Proverbs 5, 18 to 19. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. You see, when I was preparing the sermon and I read those passages, my wife would just be doing her own thing and I'd be like, hey, Paula, you're a lovely deer, a graceful doe. And she's like, what? I'm like, it's the word of God. You see, sexual pleasure is a joy in marriage. It's something that is a gift of of God given to us as a man and woman that they get to enjoy in this boundary of marriage. It's celebrated. It's actually mutually enjoyed. This description, lovely dear, graceful though, these words are very similar, almost identical to the words in the book of Songs of Solomon. If you want to talk about spicy, you ever read that book? The whole book is a man and a woman expressing themselves to one another, enjoying one another, the, the, the physical aspects of, of pleasure as they wait until marriage and in consummation. It's a very, uh, very intense book. I, I really do love that book. But ask yourselves, how does our culture view sexual pleasure? How does our culture think about that? You have two opposing views. One is like um, The Handmaid's Tale. Do you guys know that show? The Handmaid's Tale, it's on Netflix. They have the red hoods, the white aprons. The whole idea of The Handmaid's Tale is that it's, it's a universe where sex is simply for having children, and that's about it. There's only one purpose, and, and it's very oppressive. It's actually quite violent to the woman because they're treated like cattle. There's no sexual pleasure for them. I mean, is this what sex is? And, and just so you know this, uh, Margaret Atwood, right? She's at U of T, I believe, Canadian author. What was her inspiration? It's the Bible. Genesis. Abraham and Sarah. Do you guys know that story? God promises Abraham and Sarah that they're going to have a kid. Sarah can't conceive. She's struggling. And in her own security, she's like, wait a minute. I have this handmaid, right? That's the title of the book. I have this handmaid. If you have a child, Abraham, if you have a child with her, that child is my surrogate child. Is that what the Bible thinks about sex and marriage? I'll tell you this. The marriage, I mean, the Bible and and Christianity, it doesn't actually support. It doesn't encourage what Sarah is doing. It's actually the opposite. If you want to know more, text to that number there, and I'm happy to get to it. But it doesn't promote it. This Handmaid's Tale thing, this has become like a caricature of what people think about the Christian church, isn't it? It's what they think that Christians, how Christians view sex. Here's the thing. Sadly, how many of us, if you grew up Christian, grew up in a church where sex was never talked about, that sex was taboo, that maybe even your own, your own parents, who I'm sure are great parents, they never talked about sex with you. Sweep it under the rug, right? So that's one view, the handmaid's tale view. What's the other view? The other view is that, well, no big deal. 
Sex is everywhere. Super saturated in sex. Sex is the answer to everything. Are you lonely? Are you nervous? Are you anxious? Are you not happy with who you are? What do you turn to? From sex. I mean, sex at the end of the day is just like having lunch with somebody, right? There's nothing really special about it. Sex before marriage, no correlation, no big deal. Pornography, everybody does it, right? How is it that a culture that is so saturated with sex is so desperate for love? It's so eager for it. It's seeking it, but it just can't seem to find it. Could it be that when we separate sex and this beauty of marriage, that there's actually something deeper that we all still want? And when I first started talking, I said, you know, we all are looking for love. You ever wonder why? Why do we look for love? Why is that something in our our kind of human nature that we want? Take a moment, look at the prototype human beings in the book of Genesis. It kind of gives us a description of why we are the way we are. You see, you have Adam and Eve, and they're living in perfection. Life is good. Everything is perfect. Why? Because they're in the presence of God. They're directly in the presence of God. They, we, are designed to be in God's presence. We are designed to enjoy God's presence. And he dwelled with them. And he was with them. He was in their presence. But what happens? If you know that story, they give it up. They give it up. They're disobedient to God. They want to define what's right and wrong for themselves. So they turn away from God. See, what they were designed for is corrupted. It's like literally a piece that is missing from them. They are incomplete without it. And so are we. It's only in God that we can find, we can ever find this deep sense of connection. It's only in God that we can find this place of vulnerability, of love, of being completely known and accepted for who we are. Could it be that without God, we're just kind of like on a hamster wheel, just chasing and chasing the next high, chasing and chasing the next thing that brings us pleasure, but we never find it because we're not looking at God. You ever wonder what's in it for God? See, as much as we find pleasure being in God's presence, God finds pleasure in us. You ever thought to yourself, like, what? why me? Why am I a Christian? Of all the people and people I know, why am I the Christian and not someone else? It's as simple as this, is that God enjoys your presence. God enjoys you. Psalm 149.4 says, For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He will beautify the afflicted ones with salvation. God called you, right? God created you. God called you. God saved you for, from your sin to enjoy you forever. That's why Jesus came to this world. Again, that's the whole gospel message is this, so that we can finally be in God's presence and that we can enjoy him and he can enjoy us forever. And and just like we delight in God and he delights in us, husbands, wives, we are called to enjoy our presence. That's a reflection of God enjoying our presence and vice versa. Take the time Make time to be with each other. Prioritize this. 
We've looked at what breaks marriages. We looked at what builds marriages. So what, what becomes marriage? The purpose of marriage is this. When we live out this faithful marriage, what it becomes, what it already is, is a reflection of God. It's a reflection that absolutely unfaithful people are loved by an absolutely faithful God. If you remember, I talked about how the Bible starts with marriage and ends with marriage, right? First we see in Genesis, Adam and Eve, he's committed to her, they become one flesh. You kind of see that marriage thing. Where does the Bible end with marriage? It's the book of Revelation. Think about it. If you know the layout of the Bible, Genesis is the first book. What's the Revelation? It's the last book. And they both have marriage in it. Do you, do you see? These are bookends that are brought together with marriage. And what is the book of Revelation? The book of Revelation is future thinking, right? It's, it's what will happen. And it describes how Jesus will come back into this world, judge the world, and renew it. And, and perfect it. It'll be in a, a place of perfection. See, in the book of Revelation, there is a marriage that happens. A marriage that is described as a marriage of the Lamb. See, the Lamb is another word for Christ. And he comes, the bridegroom comes, and he marries his bride. Who is the bride? It's us. It's the Christian. You are the bride, your unfaithfulness, my unfaithfulness, my adultery, your adultery, all of this, our sin, our shame, our guilt. All these things are actually described as being washed away. We are cleansed by Christ. It actually describes how we are clothed with fine linen, bright and clean. Marriage points to Christ. Marriage points to how Christ was murdered and tortured and brutalized on a cross that he would bleed. And this blood is not like any other blood. This is divine blood that was shed for the church. And this divine blood, it cleanses us. It washes away our unfaithfulness, our adultery, our idolatry. And he closes us with fine linen simply because God is faithful to the unfaithful. This is who God is. And what's our contribution in this? In this exchange, it's, it's our unfaithfulness that we trade. That we trade. And what does Christ give us? He gives us his faithfulness. See, not only is God faithful to us, but he makes us faithful. This faithful one makes us faithful. You see, Solomon, what happened to him was my biggest fear. I was so scared to fall into the footsteps of my father. You know, there's a term, you are your father's son, you are your daughter's mother. I didn't become Christian until high school, right? I was 16 or 17 years old. And I lived in Hong Kong. If, if you're in the wrong circles in Hong Kong, you can get whatever you want. You want drugs? Sure. You Casual relationships, all of it. And I lived that life, and I finally found Christ. And I was one of those kind of 180 stories. I went from like swearing like a sailor 
to saying, ooh, gosh darn, you know, mm, I'm a Christian now. And what happens when you're 18 years old? You go to university. I studied at Ryerson. Um, that's like two, two blocks down from here, a block down from here. I lived in Pittman Hall, floor nine. If you know anything about living on residence, when you're 18 years old, 19-ish, and you're trying to avoid that lifestyle, it's not really the place you really want to be. I fell right back into all of that. I fell right back into it. And one night I was completely um, with others and we were not sober. That's the best way to put it. And just paranoia hit me. And I just ran. I, just, I didn't say a word. I just ran to my room and I just felt the heaviness, the dirtiness of my, my, my sin and my guilt. I wanted to just wash it off. I wanted to take a shower. And just as I'm about to step into the shower, I look at the reflection of myself in the mirror expecting to see myself. Who do I see? I see my father. I see how much I look like my father. See, the one thing I was so scared of becoming, I already was. I was unfaithful. I was not only the adulterer, but I was the idolater. And it was in this place that I humbly in my brokenness came to God. That night I prayed. And God was faithful to me because that's what God does. He is faithful to the unfaithful. And because of his faithfulness to me, I can tell you I have been married for eight years. Eight years, eight imperfect years, lots of mistakes. But I can tell you, but because of God's faithfulness to me, because God has made me faithful, I, I desperately seek and I continue to try to be faithful in my marriage, to love my wife well, to love my daughter well. If you're in this life stage, and what I said, it stings a little bit, right? When we talked about the first point, and it stings and it hurts, and, and you feel that weight, you have to go to God. Humbly come before God with these things. Why? Because God is, un God is faithful to the unfaithful. Because God always responds to humility with grace because it's who he is. If you're tired for looking for love, this is it. This is where it is. Keep looking. You're not going to find it. It's only in God. If, if you're single, and you're hearing this, I hope you see marriage is not just about two people. If you're Christian and you're single, listen, you have this love. It's not a bad idea. It's not bad to want to be married. That's not a bad thing. But you have this love. Will it fulfill you? Do you find pleasure knowing that you are in God's presence and God finds pleasure in you? Will that satisfy you? In, in the moments of loneliness and hardship, Will you desire to suffer well and desire to honor God? It is a hard battle. It is a long battle. I don't know it. But God is faithful. That's what I do know. God is faithful. God is kind. To the married, it's really clear. Protect your marriages. Find pleasure in your, your spouse. Rather than seeing yourselves in, in, in the, the center of marriage, 
we can look to Christ who considered others more significant than himself. Imagine that. Imagine that it's not about your happiness, that you're both seeking to, to love one another and honor one another. How does that change things? And to the church, to all of us, there is a wedding that will come. There's a day when Christ will come again that we will be in God's presence completely. That there's no more loneliness, there's no more anxiety, there's no more insecurities. All of these things fade away because we will be in God's presence. We need to be reminded of that. We need to look to that. We need to point each other to that, that our bridegroom will come and that he will come because God is faithful to the unfaithful. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, sometimes we just don't know how to pray to you. Sometimes we just don't feel like we know you. So I pray and ask, Lord, that you would reveal yourself. That you would remind us that you are a gracious and kind God. That you do love us. That you are faithful to the unfaithful and what you ask for is humility. What you ask for is that we come with you with our brokenness. So help us, God. For those of us who feel the pangs and weight of our shame and guilt and we want to wash it away, help us to realize that it's only in Christ that these things will fade. Thank you, Lord, that you will come again. Thank you. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. We're going to take a couple moments to uh, just answer some questions that people may have texted in, and I'm going to go through this as much as I can. So here's our first question. What if we do not ever get married? What can we take from this? I hope you caught it at the end there, if that's, if that's you and you're watching this or if you're here. You see, in the Old Testament, marriage was really important. Remember, the whole idea was you had to get to the promised land that only happened through your genealogy. You needed that seed, but guess what? As Christians now, it's not about our genes. It's about Christ. Christ was that seed. Because Christ, in Christ, We have salvation. In Christ, he makes us pure. That's how we get to the promised land. That's how we get to God's presence. It's not about marriage. And so if you want to get married, that's, again, I don't think that's a bad thing at all, but but marriage in this life is not the point. Having children in this life actually is not the whole point of it. It's a part of it. But we have Christ. This is our seed. This is what gets us um, to the promised land. Other question. Why is the woman and not the man portrayed lustful and forbidden? Is that not misogyny? That is a really good question. In the entire book of Proverbs, uh, you actually see how uh, there's a positive portrayal of a female. It's wisdom. It's wisdom. Lady wisdom is actually what brings us to the right path. And so I would actually disagree that it's misogyny because you actually see a relatively balanced view of the positivity of a female pronoun and then this uh, female adulterer. And actually in the bigger theme of Proverbs, uh, this lady folly, there's a bit of a battle between lady folly and lady wisdom, battling it out. And lady folly really being um, 
uh, described as the adulterer as well. So you have that parallel. So I, I wouldn't say it's misogyny. It's easy for us to, to read a text and assume kind of our current status and thinking and culture, but we have to see it from the full picture. And, and like I said, um, a man and woman in, in the book of Genesis, they're actually equally made in the image of God. There's an equality there distinctly in what they're made as that is actually celebrated in the Bible. There are books in the Bible that are just about woman and, and God's faithfulness to them and their faithfulness to God. Um, so I, would, I, would say, uh, I, I wouldn't say it's, it's misogyny. It's easy for us to imply that. Second, uh, third question, uh, for singles, what do all the singles in our church do with encouragement of the deers and does? Good question. It feels more like discouragement, right? It, it's easy to think that. The context is marriage. Remember, what's the perspective? This is written for the Proverbs and the Israelites. They're thinking to themselves, the only way I can get to the promised land is through my genealogy. Just like I said, it's only in Christ. And so what I think might be helpful for you is if you read the book of Songs of Solomon, if you read these words, a lovely doe, a graceful deer, that's you. That's you. God actually sees you. He, he, he loves you so much that he sees you as his bride. I think that's what we can take away from this, that there is one who loves you completely for who you are, who knows all your crap, who knows all your history, who knows all your mistakes, yet he still loves you, yet he's still faithful to you. Um, this is a bit of a long question. I will answer it um, directly. Um, I'll try to complete this one. This is our last one. It, um, this is the shortest one, and I will text the other ones back. How do we grow in liking our spouse? Love sometimes manifests in duty, but to like the person you are married to can be difficult. How do we like our spouse? You know, I think sometimes we can only see our spouse as, as a spouse, as a husband and a wife, but there's actually a deep friendship that needs to be there. And it's just like if you're building a friendship with someone else, what do you do? You actually spend, you spend time together. You do things you like together. And it's hard, right? It's, it's the hard work of finding those things. Sometimes we always feel like we're at odds, but they're there. But they're there, and we have to look for that. We have to seek it, and we have to encourage one another to seek it. And it's not going to be easy. Um, but yeah, there's a huge aspect of wanting to build that friendship and getting to that place and, and learning to love one another, not on the context of our personal happiness, but actually in the desire to want to love each other well and, and lay that foundation. I, I'm going to take a quick assumption. This could be maybe um, a woman uh, who's frustrated at a man. It could work either way. But there's a huge gift in encouragement, right? There's a difference of like someone like nagging and trying to tell someone what to do. But there's also encouragement. Say, hey, can we try this? Hey, can we do these things? Hey, can we spend time together? And if they're reluctant, I mean, that's a whole other story. I mean, counseling does help. If they're not willing to, to spend time with you, you know, we do counseling here at this church. And sometimes in counseling, you got to call it out. You can say, hey, dude, you got to get us straight. You got to love her. Hey, lady, you got to love him. That happens. But, but are you willing to, to do the awkwardness of getting that help and asking that for the help and being vulnerable? Because it's hard, uh, but it's necessary if, if you want to protect your marriages. Um, so um, that, that's the time I have right now. I will text the rest of these uh, messages. Um, it's been a pleasure. Let's now, I think, respond in song.